Hello and welcome to Personalized Learning with Matt and Courtney. My name is Matt. I'm Courtney. We go through the do-do's and the don't-do's of personalized learning. Yes, we do. And today, I'm going to go right ahead and say we have a big do-do today. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> we did. Uh, in fact, we may change our name to Personal Learning with Matt and Courtney after this. Right. Week. Yeah, good, good points. Good. And you will find out. Today, we are interviewing Alfie Cohn. Dr. Alfie Cohn, who... Uh, just listen. Just listen. It's incredible. Yeah. We'll see you after. Mr. Cohn, thank you for speaking with us. Would you share with us why you think it is imperative that we do take the time to critically examine our education systems? Well, I don't know anybody who would disagree with a proposal that broad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, including people who end up just recapitulating the status quo. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the quick answer to that question is because there's so much wrong with it and it falls so short of the ideals and objectives that most of us have. Mm -hmm. I often start a meeting with uh, teachers or for that matter, parents by asking, what are your long-term goals for your kids? How do you hope they'll turn out long after they've left? And wherever I go, I get the same kinds of answers from teachers as well as parents. You know, we, we want kids to be happy, to be ethical, to be independent thinkers, but also caring and compassionate. We want them to be curious and uh, lifelong learners and so on. And so... What I do for a living is say to people, you say you want this, so why are you doing that? Mm. And then the issue becomes, what, according to research and careful observation, do we learn about what we're teaching and how we're teaching and how those are likely to affect our own long-term goals? So, for example... If we really are serious about wanting kids to remain curious, not only to know stuff, but to continue to want to know stuff, to be lifelong learners, so that's not just a bit of, you know, rhetoric. Well, we have loads of research showing that common practices such as grades and homework actively undermine the, the likelihood that kids will continue to be interested in playing with words or numbers or ideas. If we want kids to be independent thinkers, then we have to look at all the respects in which common educational practices make them more compliant and less likely to be truly critical thinkers who raise questions about the way things are, and so on. If we want kids to think deeply, to understand ideas from the inside out, then we have to look at all the ways in which traditional practices, such as lectures, textbooks, worksheets, quizzes, grades, homework, make kids stay at the surface. And we give them the message that schooling and learning, for that matter, are just about cramming forgettable facts into short-term memory. So there are many reasons, many of them driven by our own goals, 
to question and challenge not just the way we're doing things, but the practices themselves that comprise traditional schooling. So you started to talk a little bit there about how many of the practices that we currently use or that are common keep learners at the surface, right, of what they're understanding or being able to do. So if we want our learners to become critical thinkers, what does that actually look like? What does that mean? And what are some ways teachers can do that without it being like a particular class? A lot of times we'll see schools talking about, you know, adding in a time during the day where they focus on critical thinking skills, but we don't think that's the right approach. But um, we'd like to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yes, I don't think that's the right approach either for a number of reasons. One of them is that I'm not just interested in instilling in individual students a set of discrete skills for analytical thinking, like recognizing hidden premises or, you know, post hoc ergo propter hoc and so on. <laughs> I'm interested, first of all, in a community of learners learning with and from one another how to be critical, not just self-sufficient individual thinkers. Secondly, I'm not just interested in the skills that allow someone to take apart an argument. I'm interested in the disposition to want to question and challenge the status quo. I wrote an article a little while ago, um, actually about 15 years ago, called Challenging Students and How to Have More of Them. And it offers very specific suggestions in different disciplinary classes about how we can help kids develop this commitment to saying, yeah, but why is that assumed to be true? And doesn't it contradict other things we believe? And doesn't this contradict that? And in some cases to develop a propensity to oppose injustice to say, this doesn't make sense, or I prefer not to, and to respond to, the, to outrageous things in our society by being outraged, rather than by shrugging and saying, oh, well, that's life. So there's a lot about a critical disposition or inclination that goes beyond just knowing how to argue. And we can do this in many ways, including team teaching, where students have two adults in front of them, sometimes respectfully disagreeing with each other. Or I know one teach, a history teacher liked to photocopy several different textbooks account of the same phenomenon, the same period in history, so the kids could see that they took very different messages from it leading the kids to then turn to primary sources and learn permanently to be skeptical of textbooks. And there are many other things as well where teachers can model for kids the possibility of questioning the, the received wisdom and to encourage kids to challenge them, that is the teachers themselves, not just the distant authorities. So anyway, I'm I've written about this at great length, and so have other people. It's a, a topic I care deeply about. And, of course, this also 
applies to the way an instructor handles assessment and evaluation, the extent to which teachers ought to be doing more asking and less telling, and the way teachers deal with uh, problems in the way people act in the classroom, moving away from traditional top-down, do-what-I-tell-you-or-else carrot-and-stick approaches to classroom management and so on. But first, we have to have the willingness, the gumption to be less controlling and to give kids more say about what's going on. Because, you know, children learn to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions. So the more our classrooms are really just nice ways of getting kids to follow directions, mm -hmm the more we're training them to be mindlessly obedient rather than critical thinkers in a democratic society. So we talk a lot about, about personalized learning. That's, that's our podcast. Mm -hmm. And we try to dispel some of the, the, the terrible ways that personalized learning is, is portrayed in the media. Uh, Courtney and I always joke about it's you, whenever they talk about personalized learning, you see a little kid with glasses wearing earphones staring at a screen. Right. And that is, that is just not what personalized learning is. So I was reading one of your articles and you said that one of your warning signs around personalized learning is that the tasks have been personalized for kids, not created by them. Uh, you got into right. this a little bit a second ago, but what are some ways that teachers can involve learners in their own personalization? Uh, well, that in that article I, I, that you're referring to that I wrote, which is called Four Reasons to Worry About Personalized Learning, which interested listeners can Google if they're interested. Uh, my main takeaway is that, frankly, and this is more a semantic quibble. I mean, I, it's about the way words are used here, but I've given up on the phrase. I think the bad guys have won. I never talk about personalized learning um, as something valuable, because I think at this point it has just been firmly understood contextually as what you're describing, something that always requires uh, tech and something that is artificially personalized because it starts out as something that is standardized. So I make the distinction, and you know, you may choose not to for whatever reason, but I, I've given up on personalized learning. I'm interested in personal learning. I mean, personalized learning at this point tends to mean adjusting the difficulty level of prefabricated skills based on students' test scores and usually involving software. Whereas personal learning means working with each student to create projects of, of, of intellectual value that reflect each student's unique needs and interests, which requires the presence of a, a teacher who cares about the kids and knows them very well. So if you're doing, if you're doing stuff that's one size fits all, top-down standards and objectives and outcomes, um, then you have to artificially go in and try to do it at a different pace or in a slightly different way for each kid. But if you reject that 
one-size-fits-all approach. If your curriculum as a fifth-grade teacher is very different from the fifth-grade teacher next door because you have different kids. So, of course, the best curriculum are created with kids, not for them, based on their backgrounds and interests through democratic class meetings. There's no need to then say, let's personalize it, because from the beginning, it has been created with them, reflecting on their interests. In other words, that's baked into the whole concept. You only need to talk about personalized learning if you're assuming a status quo in which the learning is one size fits all. And so there are many ways by which this process can play itself out. The way great progressive teachers not only develop personal relationships with the kids, but the way the whole curriculum starts with kids' questions about the world and themselves. And, and this is critical, the curriculum is organized around those questions and problems and projects rather than being organized around lists of facts or skills in separate disciplines. So to do real personal learning is to start from a very different point of departure about whose classroom it is, what kind of learning is involved, how that learning will play out, and the role of the students along with the teacher in shaping those projects. So I've got, I'm a curriculum director in my district, uh -huh. and I think about these things all the time. But the, the one thing that I can never get my head wrapped around is is how this all works. We, and we agree with what you, what you are saying, yeah. but but it it you've you've written that that the Common Core doesn't mean all kids should get the same education. Agreed. No, no. Common Core does mean that they Re get the same education. Correct. I'm suggesting we rebel against it because that's a bad way to approach it. So I guess my question would be: So how do I ensure that all the kids that in my district are getting a good education? Yes. If there's nothing to like to base it around, how do how do I know that the the kids that are getting it faster aren't getting a better education? That they're getting that everybody is getting a good education. Well, I would turn the question on its head and ask: How can you possibly hope that all kids will get an education if you are slavishly faithful to the Common Core? I mean, that's almost a guarantee that there will be problems across the board because standardization is the very opposite of exploration, discovery, and deep thinking. Um, now, we want to keep an eye on every kid to make sure that the thinking is deep. So if you started with student-designed interdisciplinary projects that were kicked off by a series of questions that kids wondered about, pertinent to the, whatever they're studying, then teachers are getting a stream of information about who's doing what, who's having trouble, where there are gaps in the understanding, where help is needed from the fact that the kids are doing this by watching and listening, by sitting beside kids 
you get a sense of who needs help and how things are going without ever having to give a test. All tests are inauthentic and not very informative ways of getting information. Um, they tend to measure what matters least, and I don't just refer to standardized tests here. The best teachers, we have research on this going back 60 years, almost never give tests of their own design either. So the idea that it would be hard to make sure that kids of different ability levels, interests, and backgrounds would all get a high-quality education without treating them like interchangeable widgets, the very question reflects how much we've been socialized to assume a standardized model makes sense. So I, so I have a question, Mr. Cohen. So sure. one, one thing we know from research around learning is that transparency is important, right? And when learners know what it is they're aiming for or why they're doing something or what the learning is that they're supposed to be able to demonstrate that they know or can do, that that actually um, is beneficial to learning and to achievement. So then how does this idea of learning targets fit in with a curriculum that is built genuinely from the wonderings of learners? Well, you just listed several different things quite different from each other under the general uh, concept of transparency. Okay. Some of which are about what happens while they're learning, and others dealt with sort of knowing in advance what the outcome is. If it's outcome-based, if you're working backwards from already knowing what the goal is, that's not learning. That's training. There, if you are able to put the outcomes or objectives on the wall, that's not high-quality teaching because – there is an element of unpredictability and surprise because of the way the learner's experience and decisions will change where we're headed in the best classrooms. That's an excellent example, in fact, of why I'm, I'm ranting against standardization, is precisely this notion of purporting to know where we're going to end up before we've even begun is the opposite of high quality learning. So then the question becomes, do we have any vision of where we hope this will end up? And I think the answer is yes. But as Doc Howe used to be, Harold Howe the second was the U.S. Commissioner of Education 50 years ago. And he was asked when he was at Harvard's grad school of ed, if we had to have national standards, what should they look like? And he summarized a lifetime of wisdom in four words, as vague as possible. It is appropriate in a vague or general sense to want to make sure that kids are able to communicate effectively, to make distinctions and see connections, to be able to learn collaboratively, and so on. It is not appropriate to demand that all kids know what a Venn diagram is, for example. And the same thing is true of individual lessons in classrooms. We may have a broad sense that we want to try to understand how this writer managed to grab our attention at the beginning and why the character in the story uh, left home at the end, even though he didn't seem to be unhappy 
But beyond that, and for that matter, the choice of which story to begin with, should be part of what the students individually and collectively are deciding with the teacher. So, I mean, I'm speaking in, in generalities here partly because a lot of it depends on the age, the teacher's experience, and so on. But there are, there are many ways. I have watched, sat in classrooms all over the country, watching amazing teachers create curriculum with kids, assess who needs help, and figure out how to make sure that no one is left out. Everyone benefits from this approach, and they end up not only thinking more deeply, they end up excited about learning in a way that almost never happens in a common core, you know, uh, driven district. If, if you got to keep your job by showing that you haven't been too rebellious, you know, then after the fact, my recommendation is look at the student designed projects and then try to figure out how, yeah, I guess some of what we did here corresponds to this standard we were supposed to have covered. Start with the students and then show that you've checked the boxes for the people you report to who demand you know, compliance. You don't start with the top-down standards created by people who've never met your students. Mr. Cohn, thank you very much for the discussion today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Holy crap, Courtney. Um, yeah. So now you all see why we're considering changing our name to personal learning. Uh, <laughs> because he's Mr. Cohn is right. The name has been co-opted and anyway, but I, so much of what he said is just right on and true and I could have talked to him a lot longer. Yeah, so that 20 minutes for me felt like about two yeah. and I could have just kept asking him questions for the next, you know, what, 40 to 50 hours? Right. Right. And uh, I would have gotten an, an amazing amount of stuff that I am definitely going to have to listen to this numerous times just to take everything in and try to figure out how it relates to to what I what I'm doing and am I doing the right things and uh, it it was an amazing conversation. Certainly was. It you has can... all of us thinking critically, for sure. Absolutely. Continuing our series, we have more interviews coming up and some in the past here. So make sure you listen to all of them. They're all very, very good. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere at PLearnMC. Oh, see, we already did it. PLearnMC. Oh, yeah. see, we're already at personal learning. Um, uh, yeah, hit up the, um, what's it called? Parking lot. <laughs> see, like, my brain is just like, I can't even. That'll work. That'll totally well, work. I'm going to go have a cup of coffee, everybody. So um, <laughs> we will talk next time.